Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. We're at this interesting point now where accelerating technologies mean that we have a good chance of living significantly longer in the next 10 years. Are we prepared for a world where that actually happened? Well, first, we have to get prepared to make it happen. It's not as automated as people think. But I think uh, the way I approach these questions is there is a certain wisdom in not trying to be too smart. I know that sounds like weird, but um, sometimes let's take it step by step and unlock that possibility. And then we deal with what happens next. I think that idea that you have everything needs to be overplanned, like, oh, if you extend it by 10 years, the life of people in Los Angeles or something, what happens if 10 billion people live 10 years longer? Well, I see more the challenge of making this even happen. That's definitely not going to happen the next 10 years. So first you have to make it happen for some people, and then you have to try to get it to more people. And that will give you a lot of time, that mission, to ponder how we go to Mars or something to you know, have more resources to capture that. It is interesting to imagine that world, though. I mean, so many of the degenerative diseases we have now, we've only discovered because we've had the privilege of living longer than the 30-year lifespan of when you were in the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So that is kind of the irony of medicine. You live longer and then you have more problems <laughs> that you didn't anticipate before, and then you need to solve these problems, but that's just progress. So you know, it depends. I think there's a medical question. Of course, if you live longer, there will be new problems, new types of chronic diseases or conditions. And you see it like a hundred years ago, it was all infectious diseases that killed 90% of people. Now it's all chronic diseases because we knocked them all out. Now cancer was not a big problem if everyone dies of pneumonia before, but once you get this out of the way, then you, you know, then you start dying of cancer. Once you defeat cancer, I don't know what's next. Like you probably die of like muscle weakness or something. You know, that's probably be the number one killer in the future is just muscle weakness. And then you have to solve that problem. So I think it's, uh, but every time you gain life years, I think you're gaining something incredibly valuable. You're gaining people with experience, uh, people who can live a fuller life and they're older without feeling older. And that has tremendous effects on, you know, culture and society on the economy. So I think that's very important to think about this in first principles and not like too simplistically. Like you won't have just a bunch of old people hanging out being useless, but in the future, older people are not going to be uh, just sitting there. They will be agile and young that's at, at heart and at mind, which makes them extremely valuable members of society because they will be able to do much more than young people because they're no more and can do more, but don't have these ailments. Um, so I think it's just a very different world we are building. It's interesting to imagine the progression of medicine. If, if we're shifting from eliminating infectious diseases to then eliminating chronic diseases in a world where we have much better diagnostic tools and the ability to really understand and predict disease, it's potentially the psychological ailments which may end up killing us off. <laughs> that, that could very well be, but I think, you know, Every time you have great innovation happening and great change as a function of that, it comes down, do you have a pioneering spirit at heart and this confidence that humans, if they are aligned to the right goals, can solve any problem? And that's how I see it. So I'm not afraid of new problems. I'm concerned about solving the current problems. And then we need a culture and people and the wisdom to tackle new problems. 
So, you know, I, I built in a certain variability of future challenges because you don't need to understand them now. You just have to be prepared to solve them. I'm very fortunate to be speaking today with Joe Bakhti, who's the founder and CEO of QuantGene, a biotech and data company that is really leveraging artificial intelligence and data to reinvent uh, the US healthcare industry. Joe, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I was fascinated when I was reading a bit about your background. Uh, you really came from a family uh, which was very much steeped in medical innovation. What really set you on this path, uh, given that you, you actually didn't train as a doctor yourself? Yeah, it's an interesting story that I grew up in a very scientific medical science uh, household. My mom and my dad were both life science researchers and MDs. Uh, my dad then still is like a professor for microbiology. And very passionate researcher um, and had a pretty, uh, I think, strong career, found a lot of important things. And so I was always very involved in this. And as a kid, because he shared a lot of things they found. Um, so I got my free medical education. I didn't have to pay for it from zero to 19 at home. And I think I learned so much about medicine that I've started to find it a little boring back then and said, I'm not definitely not going to going to go to med school. I feel like I know most of these things by now and said like, well, I need to, you know, there are other things in life that I find interesting and economics was one of these. So I, I became an economist because I always thought, well, in the end, the question is what actually, how do things actually work? Like who pays for all these things and how do we make sure we have more than we had before? And these seem to be very interesting decisions. And then I went into that for quite a time and then into business, of course, into, you know, corporate and uh, innovation theory and strategy. And it came all full circle back at some point, because when I became a little wiser, I realized medicine is very important. And I got my first piece of the education, but there are many more to learn. And now with Quanchin, I have this immense opportunity to merge these two big worlds, innovation and economics with medicine and biotechnology. And I think it's probably one of the most exciting things in the world right now. One of the key areas you've focused on is uh, cancer detection. And uh, this is a really fascinating area because, uh, you know, we, we tend to look at cancers individually. And, 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 I, and I guess, you know, we talk about cancer as a disease, but we often detect and treat it like a multitude of separate diseases. What do you feel like needs to change beyond just the technology of, of identifying cancer? Well, in cancer, we are still acting in a very old fashioned way, how we think about the disease, how we develop treatments, how we measure results and all these things. And I think most people are familiar with all the problems in cancer research and that we didn't make too much progress. We are being always sold that we make this tremendous progress with immunotherapies and chemotherapies and precision medicine. When you look at the bottom lines, it doesn't look great, right? We didn't make a lot of progress in the last seven years. The vast majority of the progress we made in reducing cancer mortality was early detection. It was introduction of screenings, breast cancer screenings, lung cancer for high risk and colonoscopies maybe before everything else and the reduction in smoking. So it was actually preventative and early detection medicine that had the biggest impact. The advancements in chemo treatments, for example, are extremely limited when people sell us, oh, it's so much better now. And what does it mean? Oh, we push, you know, instead of having a three months life expectancy, you have now four months and it's like a giant victory, <laughs> but you get 
pumped up with terrible drugs, it's very debatable if you actually made progress or not. And so in my opinion, I think we are entering a new, we have the opportunity to rethink medicine now as true precision medicine and turning medicine into something that used to be just looking through microscopes and injecting some stuff into plates and then seeing what happens into a true big data AI and cloud-driven discipline of research and data science. And at the center of all of that stands genetics and genomics, because that allows us to now turn biology into a data problem and move at the speed of data instead of the speed of droplets from pipettes, which is millions of times faster. And But that, need, that requires us to rethink medicine, how it actually works, right? It becomes a very statistical and machine learning problem um, that, of course, the vast majority of doctors don't even know what I mean with that. So that's, that's a problem. And to give you an example, to defeat cancer, it's not just developing a drug, it's developing an entire medical intelligence system that surrounds you like a cloud your entire life. So you can spot any kind of deviation on a genomics level in your blood at the earliest possible stage, trace down that cancer or mini tumor or pre-cancer and wipe it out before it turns into something bad. It also means to detect the flags and the causes for cancer much earlier before the cancer even happens and knock out these causes. That's the whole point of precision medicine. Mm. You don't wait until a terrible tumor has invaded multiple organs, but you can spot on a single cell level, any deviation in the genome. And one, one, when it happens, you can make massive changes in lifestyle. You can use new forms of drugs that can be developed based on that. You can apply conventional treatments like local radiation and surgery. All of them are massive game changers in survivability. So you're, so, you're saying the, the real prospect of advancing um, cancer survivability is not so much better medicines, but a uh, much more data-driven continuous surveillance and identification of early onset exactly. symptoms. Absolutely. And that's, that's something that doesn't even happen in medicine, right? It happens in a very crude first step, which is screenings. Mm. That, I mean, but the crudeness of that method is displayed in colonoscopies, for example. The rule is when you turn 50, you get a colonoscopy and then to screen for colon cancer. And then we, when you turn 60, 10 years later, you get your next standard of care screening. I mean, what do you think is going to happen in these 10 years if you get cancer the day after you got your colonoscopy? It has literally 10 years to just expand, and that's very bad. Part of the advantage of your approach is it, it's much less intrusive um, giving a drop of blood than it is having a full-on colonoscopy. The liquid biopsy part of our technology, I think, is one of the greatest game changers, but whole exome sequencing and clinical-grade genetics cause adds a lot to that too. But of course, if you do a colonoscopy, number one, you do it every 10 years. That's a bad idea. Number two, if you have lung cancer, you're not going to find it with a colonoscopy. Hmm. If you have any cancer, you're not going to find it with the exception of colon cancer. Whereas in a liquid biopsy where you take a tube of blood and investigate every single fragment of cell-free DNA for cancer-associated mutations, you have at least the potential to see any cancer with a possible exception of glioblastomas, but even those might be able to be detected. So it's non-invasive, it's cheaper over time, and it allows you to see much, much more of your entire cancer status. When we were talking earlier, um, you know, really about how little has really changed 
in the healthcare system, when you look back 100 years uh, to the last time we had a pandemic in 1918, it's extraordinary how similar so many of the public health strategies were then as now. Um, and and it's, it's almost frightening when you think that all the technology we have, all of the progress, we don't really seem to be applying it to our current problems in the way we should. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a testament to two things, one bad thing and one great thing. It's a testament to the absolute greatness of that step in medical care that happened 100 years ago. Like, you know, starting in Berlin at, you know, the virtual clinic where they basically invented modern medicine and then uh, followed by Fleming and the invention of penicillin and, uh, you know, Louis Pasteur played a role. So these this very unique constellation where really a few people made the absolute breakthroughs in infectious diseases, mostly uh, invented vaccinations and, you know, antibiotics, but also other treatments for polio and was actually a handful of people. That's the amazing thing. And then Semmelweis and the hygiene revolution that people understood you need to be hygienic in a hospital because otherwise you get infections and the invention of, you know, modern surgery, all that happened roughly a hundred year, hundred years or longer ago. And the transformative power of, of these innovations, I think we can't even imagine today how, how transformative that was back in the day in 1880 or something, every family in the world, in the Western world, in Europe was used to seeing their family members die, their kids die. Like everyone is like, Oh, I had seven kids and now two died. And it was of course bad, but everyone's like, well, that's just life. Every single family lost multiple family members constantly to extremely terrible diseases. And the impact of inventing that and it was like complete magic to people. And I think that total transformation uh, is so powerful and was such a miracle that to this day, it's actually the big miracle of medicine. And now coming to the bad point, I think that blinds us to how bad it is today and how far we have fallen behind the curve because medicine still enjoys this miracle effect it had back then, which was absolutely true. It was one of the greatest miracles in human innovation. What happened? It basically added, it doubled human lifespan. And, you know, it's literally like inventing something today that within 10 years doubles human lifespan to, you know, 160 years that would make everyone think, Oh my God, that's the greatest miracle that ever happened. Because that happened, I think we, we became incredibly complacent. Medicine became incredibly arrogant and thinks they're like the masters of the universe. When in fact, over the last 50 years, it has failed to deliver much. So we are basically still living off this initial kind of miracle, technical miracle. And, and that was being squeezed out that potential of that to this day. Like all the, the incremental improvements in life expectancies were still going back to these hygiene pills and surgery. That's how I call it, like this great innovation. And now we just squeeze it all out. That's why we see, you know, asymptotic behavior of the life expectancy advancement. So we are basically seeing no improvement anymore over the last five years. We are seeing it actually going down and we have reached the end of that cycle of that innovation cycle that started 120 years ago. And it's time to rethink everything because we need the next cycle. And that will be based on fundamentally different principles. When you look at the US healthcare system in particular, it's a paradox because you have some of the most advanced and sophisticated innovation and research in the world. But you also have a, um, 
a broken s- system of incentives and a, a, an incredibly complex payer ecosystem, which makes innovation and changing standard of care very difficult. Yes. So that's one of my favorite topics because I think it's the key lever. I think when you look around and when we look at other companies, you know, potential acquisition targets or collaboration targets or competitors, the amount of potentially breakthrough technologies is amazing. But the conversion rate of these breakthrough technologies into actual care is close to zero. It's just not happening. And I hate to be, you know, the red pillar here. I mean, this is just what it is. And we get told every day, oh, it's so amazing, all this modern medicine. Like, where is this modern medicine? It doesn't exist, but it's in the labs. So the potential is there, but it's not being translated. And I think the payer system is absolutely at fault here. We do not have a free market in medicine and biotech. It's not a free market in the sense that if I invent something that protects you alive, you are not going to pay me for it because that system forces you to not pay. I have to pitch you insurance and your insurance interests are fundamentally divergent from yours. Yours as a patient, okay, make, keep me healthy, make me live long. Whereas the insurance improve my bottom line. Okay. How do you improve the bottom line of an insurance company? Make them pay less per patient or make the patients healthier, which is the same thing. But if you make them healthier by paying more, you have a little conflict. You're basically <laughs> pitching them over. Let's decrease your bottom line. And then they are also not incentivized for the long term because the average retention of a patient in a insurance system in the US is less than three years, which just means if the insurance doesn't make back their money in three years that they invest in you, they're not going to invest it because they're going to help a competitor save money, which doesn't make any sense. But all preventative care we are developing is very unlikely to pay off in three years. It's going to pay off in the long run. And it's also going to pay off in two ways. There's an economic way it might pay off. If you, if you spend 2000 bucks on liquid biopsy a year on quantine, if you ever had gotten cancer, it's paying off. Because in total, you pay $40,000, $60,000 over your lifetime. That save, you save that money within two, two months of chemo that you don't have to get. If you don't get cancer, of course, it doesn't pay off because you invested in something you didn't get. In both cases, you're still happy to spend it, right? Because in one case, well, I saved money and I didn't die of cancer. In the other case, you say, well, I never got cancer, so I wasted 60,000 bucks, but that's pretty good news to me that I didn't got cancer. I'm willing to spend 60,000 in a scenario where I might have wasted it because I never got cancer. But that thinking doesn't work for insurance companies. But I'm thinking there are, there are many countries in the world that, that aren't as Baroque in their design as the US healthcare system, where there is a, a kind of a national insurance scheme. But, but even there, you don't see that there, there is still a reluctance to incorporate some of these more advanced screening techniques and um, genetic sampling approaches uh, rather than the traditional doctor working with a specialist doing some blood tests kind of a diagnosis. Well, I think it's not a big secret what the problem is for anyone who is interested in the theory of innovation and in free markets and how they work. So one problem are insurance companies because that's just a dumb idea, right? So hmm. especially for chronic diseases, because insurance is fundamentally designed for risky things that might not happen. Whereas chronic diseases and death are not risky things, right? They will happen. There's no economic risk. It's a guarantee. And every time you insure yourself against something that's guaranteed, 
it's a terrible deal. It's like, for example, getting clothing insurance or food insurance. So every time you want to eat, you have to apply with your insurance and they choose your meal and then they charge you 2000 bucks a month for it. No one would do it because you don't need an insurance against hunger because you know you're going to get it. So you can take care of yourself. You need insurance for fire when, when your house burns down because it's likely not going to happen. So the funny thing is in, in healthcare, it doesn't make too much sense because the risk that you get a deadly disease is 100%. It's going to happen. So you can actually prepare for it. And that's why the insurance system doesn't make sense. On the government level, you know, when, when you have some kind of socialized healthcare, it always sounds smart because then everyone is taken care of and can be efficient. But it also doesn't make any sense. Like when was the last time that the government showed they do anything efficiently? That's like the oldest problem in the world that is proven that central planning destroys innovation and efficiency because it turns into a bureaucracy where the bureaucrats have no interest and no direct reward or punishment for making your life better. And so it just drags it into this terrible abyss of inefficiency. And if they see something like quantine, why would they ever deal with this? Like, oh, it's so exhausting. I have to learn all that sequencing stuff and no one understands it. And these studies are so complicated, you know, not now. Maybe in two years, I review it. Hmm. Whereas if you're a patient, you're going to say, well, I don't review it in two years. I'm scared of cancer. I better take care of that now and understand how this works. So, so if you're thinking about alternate business models, I mean, if you're dealing with something that basically a guaranteed consumption of so in your example of food or transport or anything else, is a subscription model, is this why you started thinking about this you know, self-pay model essentially? Yes. So it's not an easy decision because of course you always have this ethical and moral question of access and equality, like how do you make sure everyone gets it? But I think that's also immature thinking because if you really want to make the lives of everyone better, the first step is you have to get the technology out and you have to make it work somehow. And I think the Tesla model here is the best example. Tesla didn't start with a Model 3 or Model Y. They started with an expensive roadster for $200,000. Why? Because it's not possible otherwise. You, you need to create something that allows the company to, to experiment and figure out how it works and have some buffer and margin in the beginning. So that's why I think the only way to have real medical innovation is to have a baseline government-funded healthcare system for baseline medicine, but the advanced medicine needs to play in a completely free market because you need to experiment, you have to learn and you have to fail and you have to have people who pay for it. And in the beginning, you need the people to pay for it who are the most innovative consumers who say like, well, I have more leeway. I, I understand I have to learn myself and I have to work with you on it, but I want it and I'm willing to pay out of pocket for it. That allows the company to evolve much more rapidly with the patient and form that unique little tribe of innovators that, you know, where the consumer, the patient, the company, the investors are all the same kind of, and together create this prototype environment that then really moves the needle. Um, from there, you take it to the next level. You make it a little cheaper, more available, because now we as a company understand how this actually works. We are launching that whole system, this tribe, innovator tribe system in 2021 with, you know, a bunch of, I think, very innovative investors and patients and systems um, and employers and, you know, take it as quickly as possible to the next level. We say, okay, now we really understand how we take it to the next level where patients who are less able or willing to be 
you know, experimenting and helping us to evolve that. That's happening in 2022, 2023. And then from there, you have a really robust scalable model for the next three years to really scale this. And once you're there, you have a clinical evidence body where you can force Medicare and some other people to actually pay for it for everyone. Right. It's a totally new model of doing things, by the way, in biotech. No one does it this way. Uh, that's why we don't see much progress. I'm absolutely convinced as an economist, that's the only way to do it. So thinking about how this also starts to change the standard of care and, and the way that doctors interrelate with patients, how does a doctor now need, to, in this world where they have tools like this and where we have you know, better genomic screening and precision medicine, how does the doctor of the 21st century need to change their approach and their mindset and potentially their skill set? We already see that doctors, a few doctors have already changed their mindset. And companies like Quantin, who changed this game in a very fundamental way by deploying extremely innovative, comprehensive new types of medicine, they need doctors or we need doctors who play along with that and also have the same goal. And fortunately, in California, we have a lot of these doctors who say, okay, I get it. This is not good what we are doing right now. We need to take it to the next level. And that's the nice hybrid system. We have the best, most innovative doctors and the best, most innovative new systems and technologies. For, I think for doctors, my message is always medicine is rapidly now transforming. In the next 10 years, we will see a massive transformation. At the heart of that transformation, besides technology, is that general change of approach that you will see a much, much more diverse and innovative space where you have a core system that's very uninnovative, but then surrounding it is this vast new space of disruptive innovators and companies. And you as a physician, you can't just read a bunch of papers and say like, oh, this is just what everyone else does. You have to start really becoming more of a scientist who looks into an engineer to understand, okay, what are these new options? They can be very deep and very foundational. Which of these options are a good match with my positioning? as a preventative care or advanced screening doc or whatever your positioning is? And where can I partner up with innovative companies to deliver that latest innovation to my set of patients and build that ecosystem where I find these patients and I find these innovations and make it happen? So I think I call them super doctors, this small subset of very innovative thinkers uh, who are physicians. They are the centerpiece of prototyping these new healthcare system, mini healthcare systems. And I think the potential for disruption and shaping the future of medicine becomes vastly greater for doctors. So if you're a doctor and you have a little entrepreneurial spirit and you want to move the frontier of medicine, there was never a better time than now. You know, when you, when you look at the, the, the origins of the public health system that we have today, you spoke about the innovation about a hundred years ago, the doctors of that era tended, would have had to been a lot more entrepreneurial and explorers a, a sense in in order to rapidly assimilate those innovations into their own practice. You know, when you think about being a doctor today, then, I mean, to what degree do you need to then embrace a greater understanding of technical knowledge about AI and data in order to evaluate these, these different offerings? Maybe the best way to do it for doctors, you should become an angel investors and biotech companies. I think that would be a good <laughs> idea because it forces you, I do some angel investments, it just forces you to really deal with entrepreneurs. And even though they're too early for actually implementing this in your practice, but it gives you a, a feel for really wrapping your head around quickly. Okay. They say they have a new AI system for medical records. 
these people say they have a new sequencing technology that does RNA sequencing, whatever. I think dealing with that from a more holistic perspective as an investor, even if you just put in 20,000 bucks or something, is very helpful to then also look at bigger things like quantine and see, okay, let's view quantine not just as someone who tells me, do you want to become a doc in our network, but view it as a bigger thing, the whole company, and make up your mind about it and how it matches with your practice and your objectives. And by the way, it's not just individual docs, it's also administrators and innovative clinics or innovative new networks or other startups who are in the primary care space. There's a lot of things happening on the fringes, on the innovation fringes um, that become less fringy. And so I think it's this whole new crowd of innovators that can be administrators or entrepreneurs for primary care startups. It can be physicians who want to build out their practice. And there are lots and lots of patients, at least in the US, who understand these things pretty well and are looking for that. I speak a lot with um, big pharmaceutical companies and uh, you know, one of the biggest themes the last few years has been digital transformation because they themselves realize that so much of the way that they have discovered, marketed, and distributed and produced drugs in the past is, is just no longer going to be sustainable. But they do really struggle with this idea. And you know, at the heart of your organization, I mean, you are a true data-driven AI-powered platform. I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that you generate something like 6 billion data points for every patient. So correct, what, yes. what do you think that a big pharma could learn you know, from new biotech startups like yourselves about how to think about transforming to a more true AI-powered organization? Well, unfortunately, I'm a student of innovation history, so I'm not very bullish on them because it's the same question, what can General Motors learn from Tesla? And the answer is nothing because they can't. They should, but it never works because I have friends and colleagues at Big Pharma who are very smart people, but they are just completely... Um, constrained. Uh, they're like often yeah, get very cynical feedback. They say, yeah, I wish I understand. I know, but we can't. And I mean, if someone is really interested in doing that on a CEO level or like a really high up level, I think it needs to come from the CEO. You need to be much, much more disruptive and aggressive about going about these things. And I think the only way to do it, you have to spin off new units and get them funding and give them 10, 20 million or something and go a little crazy about it and say like, do whatever it takes, be as radical as you can. Because often you need to, you need to apply process and business model disruption on a much deeper level than they're willing to do. For example, the entire distribution model is a function of reimbursement models, which is a function of, you know, gold standard and Medicare. You're already lost. You are just on a losing, shrinking plate. It, you, you know, what pharma, for example, could do with new technologies like liquid biopsy coming up, you can develop completely new types of chemo drugs that attack not late stage tumors, but early stage tumors systemically, right? You, a little pill you take when you have an early stage tumor that maybe not even be, might not even be able to localize. We just know you have it in your body. We can't find it. I think it's very reasonable to assume you can knock that tumor out with a, some form of immunotherapy, for example, but Pharma is not really aggressively developing that because they think, well, it's so complicated to get approval for something like that because you need to for the diagnostics. That's totally new. You need to do very complex studies and you need this new thing. So I think you could actually get approval, but reimbursement. So the FDA is not even the problem with that. You just do a safety study. 
the problem is the reimbursement. Then Medicare says, ooh, but you know, who gets screened and who pays for the screening? If you don't pay for it, we can't pay for the treatment and stuff like that. You know, in a free market world, Pfizer or GSK, they would just say, who cares? Let's just create that treatment for self-payers first and then force Medicare to reimburse it after we show enough people, you know, get a benefit from it. But they would never do that. It's against the entire business model. You don't start selling self-payer chemo drugs. So do you think, though, you know, there could be a disruptive big pharma company in the future, which looks more like a Hollywood studio, you know, where you have a sort of potentially a looser ecosystem of creators and, and, and disruptive companies, and then when they you know, hit gold with something, you can, you can move your whole distribution model behind them? Oh, I definitely think there are enormous upside potential, innovation potential in pharma. I just don't think, just based on my experience, that it comes from big pharma. I think it comes from startups. And a startup can easily scale very quickly to a $100, $200 billion company, as we now know, right? So if, mm. and in biotech, it would be faster than Tesla. That's the funny thing nowadays. You nail that pharma model, this new pharma model, and you start actually saving lives by the hundreds of thousands, you will be extremely valuable in a short period of time. You will be bigger than the biggest pharma company. That's why I'm so concerned for our colleagues at Big Pharma. I think they underestimate the level of disruption that's awaiting them. And I think it will be entrepreneurs starting with an angel investment of like a million who can scale to a $100 billion company very quickly once they hit certain. Besides the, I guess, culture and business models, there's a technological dimension to this as well. Because, you know, even the big pharmaceutical companies that are trying to scale up their automated production and, and their use of AI tend to focus on bioinformatics rather than true software engineering. Um, and, and, this, and I guess the latter has been a, a big part of how you've structured your organization. Yeah, and I find it interesting when you look at innovation patterns of successful companies, there are different types and categories of patterns. And I think what we are doing at Quantine, we fall much more into a Tesla or SpaceX pattern than we fall into a Facebook or Google pattern or even Amazon pattern. And the very important differentiator, these are all amazing companies, but they work fundamentally differently. So at Google, you have a core technology, which is pretty simple, like PageRank, that is disruptive. It does something completely different. And then suddenly you detect, you find it, you bring it to scale, and then you just scale the hell out of it and build business models around it. That's Google. Amazon, very similar. It's like optimizing supply chain and speed and turnaround time and scale of products. It's a very, in a way, it's a one-trick pony, but a very new one-trick pony that's Incredibly powerful. Facebook, same thing. Whereas Tesla or SpaceX are fundamentally different. They don't have a single, it's not a one-trick pony. There's not even anything very innovative about it. It's just a vast constellation of innovations that is being combined into some complex system that has no disruptive innovation, but a huge number of incremental innovations and new combinations of things like a rocket. A rocket is very old school even SpaceX rockets, they don't do too much different than anyone else. They just do it better in totality and get it done in the end. And it, it requires a different innovation mindset. They have to innovate every day across hundreds and hundreds of things. And every time you need to innovate, but you never have to invent some new thing that never existed. In biotech, it's very similar. What we have to do at Quantine, if you look at every individual component, our software cloud systems, they are not the most advanced super cloud systems in the world. They're just vastly better than anything in medicine. 
but compared to Amazon, we look like beginners. Our AI systems, sure, they're the best in genomics compared to Tesla self-driving cars. We are like a joke, right? So it's not about having any of these dimensions and, and be the best. It's about combining them into a big picture system that just delivers the end. So it's very similar to, to a rocket. It's nothing special in a rocket. You just have to assemble all these pieces and you have to understand what is my rocket all about? Is it a self-landing rocket that has to you know, lower the cost? Okay, let's optimize that system and get it done. It's a very weak, it's a very weak angel pitch. If you go, it's like, I want to build a rocket that's like a little cheaper and can land. It's like, okay, that's great. That's not a great idea. What's great is if you can build it, then it's great. And so the same in biotech, you know, it's not a great idea that we have like, oh, we do total precision medicine. No, the art of consciousness, we actually do it and we can deliver it. Yes. And so that's the same in pharma. I mean, it's not hard to come up with a disruptive pharma model, but it's a lot of work and a lot of expertise in hundreds of thousands of little things. That's what you have to build. And that requires discipline and very smart people and things like that. So from your point of view, as you lead and build your team, you know, to execute on a million small innovations, what have you found to be uh, useful, I guess, in keeping people focused on that? I mean, that's one of my favorite topics because I'm fighting with people all the time over that, especially with investors. It's like a little weird, but I think, I think Tesla and companies like it probably had this exact same problem. When I look for talent, and executives and people who had the product teams and whatever. It's incredibly hard to find because every time I get someone from Amgen or Roche or something, the level of even smart people who just got used to these companies, one person at Quantine at the same level is literally a thousand times more efficient than a person over there at the same level. Like the level of ineffectiveness in biotechnology firms or healthcare firms, you can't even imagine it if you were coming from Airbnb or like Facebook or something. What's the source of that ineffectiveness though? Like what, what is actually the difference? Like I tell you, for example, clinical trials, when we build, when we design clinical trials, that's probably a two day process with my chief medical officer and me and some clinicians and uh, our technology. Like, okay, What needs to be done? When do we need it? How do we implement it? The next step is a week, we organize the teams on the ground, call up principal investigators, hire a bunch of people who help us collect the samples. We get IRB approval in four weeks and we are rolling. The normal lead time for a clinical trial is 18 months. So we do it in one week, what is normally done in 18 months. And now the question is why? And the answer is because why not? Right? They, they, if you go to Pfizer and they plan their trials, they just, that's just what they do. And you could go and it's like, why? Like, why don't you do it in a week? And it's just the entire structure is designed like that because time is not of the essence. If people think, well, it takes 25 years anyway, who the hell cares if you need 18 months? And in our case, it's very different because we know we can now move the needle immediately. We want results after a year, first results. We want the next results after two years and prepare that for 18 months. And also it's completely unnecessary. So, and that just goes across the board. When we design essays, sequencing essays, I want to see progress within five days. I don't want to wait two years. There's no reason to wait. And that expectation, people have to wrap their heads around and then get into that hacker mindset. And was the exact same in SpaceX. I have a lot of friends at SpaceX. When you go to NASA, you know, and ask them, oh, we need a new spaceship. How long does it take? Oh, it's a hundred billion. It's going to be 30 years. 
And then at SpaceX, no, you have like two weeks for the blueprints. And then I want a prototype in six months. It's possible. And, and no one would contest it. That's the funny thing. No one says you're crazy. It's like, oh, this sounds very exhausting. How much of this, like, is, yeah. this is a question of scale? Like, I mean, in 10 years time, if you're a 100,000 person organization at QuantChain, will you have the same problems as Pfizer? No, I'm pretty sure we won't. Because again, look at the examples. Like we have very large companies who are aggressive innovators. It's, I think it's a question of complacency. And scale does not always translate into complacency. It's a leadership question. You know, if you have someone who's just a Harvard MBA, who is like an employed CEO, great. What you need is a fanatic founder who understands why they're doing it. And again, Elon is a great example, but the other guys too. I mean, they have a mission. Like Zuckerberg is not going to say, oh, I'm so fancy now. Let's play a little golf. They are obsessed with a specific mission. I think that's by far the biggest value generator and driver for large companies. You need an obsessive entrepreneur who is radical about their objectives. The amount of inefficiencies you're generating through complacency, I can't even, I see it every day with people who apply to our jobs like that. It's just completely shocked. That's my favorite interview approach. I just tell them the expectations and what we do. And then 80% just drop out. It's like, okay, that's very interesting. And, <laughs> and then I hear from them again. That's my favorite knockout punch. Look, the last thing I want to ask you about today um, is really about the one thing I think that threatens to derail a lot of the edge technology in healthcare, which is the issue of privacy and, and uh, rights and personal data. You know, especially as we start to get to this point where we're sequencing entire genomes and who has it and can it be released to law enforcement and, you know, the FBI using ancestry.com to track down serial killers. I mean, there's going to be a growing concern about where the data is and who has access to it. Absolutely. I 1 million percent agree because I'm one of the customers of Quantine. I know exactly how valuable my data is and how deep it goes. And I'm, of course, by... At this point, everyone got the message that you can't trust the government. So, Do you, do you store think, 6 billion data points on a key fob that you keep in your home safe? No, we are cloud-based, but I think there are multiple layers of security that will become more and more important. Number one, the fact that we are free market and not an insurance company and not a drug company, and that we always make a very clear promise. We are not pimping out your data to drug companies like most people actually do in genomics. Uh, but your data is owned by you. We are your administrators and no one will ever get access except for the people you give explicit access to, which is your physician at Quantine, your genetic counselor at Quantine and no one else. And our AI. And the AI doesn't give it to anyone else. So I think that's the first day that you have a different business model where you say like, you are paying me. So you are my boss. Whereas if your insurance pays me, well, guess who's my boss, your insurance. And that's the first problem. And the second, when it comes to government and saying, oh, you know what? Mike is a terrorist now. Give me his data. Because we just decided we don't like his between walls. Sounds very dangerous to <laughs> the UK government. Let's just shut him down and give me your, his genome. We want to make sure this guy doesn't walk around and does stuff. My tagline so, is a podcast for dangerous ideas. So I guess I was asking for it. Exactly. He even says it. Uh, it's dangerous. So I think... For companies, it's similar to Apple and iPhone security, which is they had this debate if the FBI wants your iPhone, do the Apple, you know, has to give them access. I think companies like Quantin, we are thinking about this very hard privacy is 
an absolute priority for us because our relationship to patients is based on trust and that trust extends to the best medical care and preventative systems, but also to privacy. And I think there will be systems we're actually working on. I don't know when we can deploy them, hopefully in the next 12 months, where we have kind of kill switches, right? So basically the government can complain if, you know, your data just gets destroyed, for example. So you can definitely build in systems where it just becomes impossible, even for the government with a subpoena to access the data. And basically we could argue if we don't even have access to your data, but you have to approve and there's some automatic improvement system. And if the government requests this, we've passed it on to you, Mike, the government wants your data, press yes or no. And if you press no, it's gone, right? That's, there are solutions to that, but you need a partner at your side on the company side who's firmly on your side and no one else aside. And that's very important for Quanchin. And sure. that includes the government, of course. I mean, this idea that, oh, the government are the good guys. I think we are at this point over it and people get it. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.